It was the Puritan Matthew Henry who wrote, There is a proneness in good men to expect the crown without the cross. And perhaps that's especially true for Christians in America who have little experience with persecution. But now, as true Christianity is under more scrutiny than ever before, believers may be facing unprecedented temptation to compromise. With that in mind, what does a truly uncompromised life look like? We'll talk about that and more on The Truth Forum with David Parsons. Our guest today is Dr. Tom Pennington. Dr. Pennington currently serves as pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in South Lake, Texas. Prior to that, he was senior associate pastor and personal assistant to Dr. John MacArthur at Grace Community Church in Sun Valley, California. Dr. Pennington's teaching ministry can be found online at thewordunleashed.org. Now let's join Truth Remains founder David Parsons along with Dr. Pennington as we consider the uncompromised Christian life. Hello, and welcome to this edition of The Truth Forum. I'm Dave Parsons, and I'm so grateful that you've joined us. You know, recent events suggest that our society is growing increasingly hostile to genuine Christianity, and it's very likely that more intense forms of persecution are ahead for the American church. But in the face of that reality, we can be encouraged by reflecting on the faithfulness exhibited by previous generations of Christians and by resting in the promises of God given to us in His Word. I hope this podcast encourages you along those lines, and I pray that you will be faithful and uncompromising as you live for Christ in these days. And that's what we're talking about today with my dear friend, Pastor Tom Pennington. Tom is joining us by phone today from his office at Countryside Bible Church in South Lake, Texas. Tom, thank you for taking a few moments with us today. Uh, Listen, Dave, it's my joy. I appreciate uh, you and and the ministry of Truth Remains so much. I want to get your perspective and wisdom as a pastor on the challenges Christians face in these difficult days for the church in America. Almost daily, now we are hearing about outward hostility toward God, what the Bible teaches, and towards believers who are faithful to live and stand for the truth. Should we be surprised by what we're seeing? Well, you know, I think first of all, and you know, Peter's so clear about this, we absolutely should not be surprised. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. This goes with the package, and, and honestly, it always has. I mean, all of those who are true believers in God have faced this. Go back to the very beginning. Go back to when there was only one family, only four people on earth, and the children of the devil have always hated the children of God. And that is the same in every generation. Jesus said, if they hated me, they'll hate you. And so we should not be surprised by this at all. And in fact, I think our Lord teaches us to have a totally different mindset. I mean, he said, consider yourself blessed, rejoice, be glad. Obviously, that's not a form of sadism. We're not supposed to enjoy the the process, uh, the the actual hatred that's sent our way. I think he was simply saying we can rejoice in this because it shows that we're on the right side, that we belong to God's people because the righteous have always been persecuted. And I think along with that, it's so important to remind ourselves that in every generation, 
there is an issue that arises, I think by divine design, that our Lord uses to separate the wheat from the tares, to separate true believers from those who are not. I think in the middle of that, it invites the hostility of both false believers and the world, but, but it's a good thing. Although it's hard, it's hard for us to go through that and to see that happen. It's for the ultimate benefit, I think, of both the church and the gospel. I agree. We need to see it in light of God's purposes, because in a climate like this, Christians will be tempted to compromise their beliefs simply to avoid making waves. And the kinds of compromises I have in mind are seemingly subtle. Now, as a pastor, what kind of compromises do you see Christians making on a daily basis? You know, I think when it comes to these cultural pressures, it seems to me, and I see this um, in, in the church I pastor, the people I interact with, and I read about it in the church at large, I think there are two primary temptations, Dave, that, you know, when it comes to compromise, we can all be tempted to. I think the first of those is simply to allow the, the thinking, the mindset of the age, the sort of zeitgeist, uh, to reshape our own thinking to change our own minds about issues that the Bible addresses. I think that's why Paul says so clearly in Romans chapter 12, he says, don't allow the, the thinking, the, the mindset of the age in which you live to shape your thinking into its mold, but rather we're to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Allow the scripture to shape our thinking instead of the world around us to shape our thinking. But but I think it happens. I think even true believers can begin to think to some extent like the world around them. And that's one sort of temptation, I think, when it comes to compromise. I, I think the second, and this is in some ways perhaps more common for those of us who really embrace the Scripture, and that is to continue to hold to the biblical truth, to believe what the Scripture teaches, but just to keep our mouths shut about it in any sort of public setting with unbelievers in the desire to be accepted and to fit in. And so we just hold our tongue and we never speak up, even gently and graciously, but we never speak up about what God says and what he has to say about the issues of our time. I think those are the two temptations to compromise. I think you cut us all on that second one. And that's really where I think the culture wants to push us. They want us to keep it to ourselves, and and if we're honest, that's often the the comfortable option. And yet, that's not what we've been called to. Talk to us about what can happen to a believer once he or she starts down that slippery road of compromise. You know, I think you have to look at what the real temptation is. I, I think for all of us, when if we're tempted to compromise we're really being tempted to avoid conflict and offending unbelievers with the truth because we want to be liked, we want to be accepted, we want to fit in. And if that becomes the driving force of your life, if pleasing men, it ultimately becomes the, the issue in all of your decisions, then eventually uh, I think it has to lead to some compromise of the gospel itself. Think about it. I mean, the gospel message itself is offensive. It tells people that they're sinners who've broken God's law, that that sin has permeated every part of their being, that they can do nothing to please God in any way, and that their only hope is to abandon themselves and all self-hope and trust and put their confidence in 
God alone and grace alone and the work of Christ alone. I, I think that's far more offensive than believing homosexuality is a sin. And so I think if, if you really want to be accepted by the world, you eventually have to compromise at some level the basic tenets of the gospel. You have to back off on the idea that man is a rebellious sinner without any good in him and that he has to be saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And I think where that leads in our pluralistic age, and sadly we've seen this even with with evangelical leaders when they're pitched a softball on national television, is, is you eventually have to give up the exclusivity of Christ and the gospel. Now, you know, true Christians can compromise the gospel. I mean, read Galatians 2. Peter and, frankly, everybody but Paul was willing to compromise the gospel to some extent in that situation. But I think if you compromise enough, you eventually demonstrate that you're not, never have been a believer at all. And that's a sobering call for anyone who claims to be a follower of Christ. Tom, in recent days, we've seen America's highest court place itself abjectly against God's design for marriage. And we suddenly find ourselves deep in the midst of a homosexual revolution. To voice any objection is to be labeled intolerant. And the intolerant will not be tolerated. And this brings us to a very important question that we all face. What is the believer to do? Or let me ask it this way. Should Christians withdraw from the culture? We, we all are facing this question. What does the uncompromised life really look like? Well, I mean, first of all, I think this is so important for us to understand. Isolation from unbelievers is never the answer as a believer in Christ. That wasn't how Jesus lived. Paul says, you know, to the Corinthians, I didn't tell you not to have anything to do with unbelievers because then you'd have to leave the world. And the implication is that's a bad thing. That's not a good thing. And so we're here to to be a testimony to the gospel. You know, I really think when you when you think about what an un, uncompromised Christian life looks like, I don't think you can get a clearer portrait of that than the one Jesus gives in the Sermon on the Mount. You know, in Matthew 5, he uses these two just brilliant pictures from everyday life to picture what a Christian life in a pagan culture looks like. You know, the images of salt and light. You know, in, in terms of salt, Jesus basically says to us, listen, you, my followers, are the moral preservative across the planet. And I think, how can we be that preservative in the culture? I think we have to be in the world. You know, salt can't serve its purpose if it stays in the salt shaker. You have to get out of the salt shaker and, and be in the world. Not of the world, but in the world. And, and I think... It's not an accident that this passage comes right after the Beatitudes, because I think the way we are a preservative is by simply being who we are in Christ. When we are uh, those who are the beggars in the Spirit, who mourn our sins, who are meek, you know, who are peacemakers and so forth, I think that is a powerful preservative in the culture. It is salt when we are those things. And, and you know, that second picture that that Jesus gives there of light. I mean, what does light do? Light allows us to see things as they really are. And, and that's what we as Christians do. By our very presence, 
we expose that which is sinful and we point to that which is true and beautiful and excellent. And again, I think we do that by our character, by simply being a picture of Jesus in the gospel, living out the Beatitudes. I think we do that by our good works, by living out the implications of the gospel. And obviously, we are light by our message, by proclaiming Jesus in the gospel to a, a dark world. We're hearing story after story now about individuals whose businesses and livelihoods have been threatened because of their beliefs. And Tom, this is really where it gets down to the reality of, of real life, and it's a frightening reality we face. If you compromise your faith, you put your eternal soul in danger. But if you don't compromise and take a stand for the truth, you may put your life or livelihood in danger. How do we understand this uh, tension, and how should the believer balance that tension? You know, Dave, I, I think that's a very difficult question, and I certainly feel for those who find themselves caught in these positions. And, and I fear that someday many of us might find ourselves in similar situations. I, I think there's a couple of things to keep in mind. I think, first of all, we need, as Jesus reminded us as Christians, not only to be harmless as doves, but also to be wise as serpents. I think sometimes Christians create unnecessary conflict. Uh, Daniel, I think, is a great example of living in a pagan culture. I, I think about that, that interaction he had in Daniel 1, where he dealt with the requirement to eat the king's food in such, uh, a, such an example of biblical wisdom and biblical diplomacy in, in getting to do what his conscience dictated that he must do, but doing it in such a way that he was not uh, an unnecessary offense to those he was interacting with. I think we can do some of that. You know, but I think Daniel also reminds us that even when we're wise and when we're res respectful, uh, persecution can still come because it certainly happened in his life. And I think when that happens, then we have to think, okay, how do I, how do I interact in, in this situation? I, I recently taught my own congregation and reminded them that that when that happens, when there's an injustice done, something that isn't in keeping with the law of the land, uh, there's nothing wrong with seeking justice through the legal system. Uh, you know, I'm often reminded that Jesus and Paul did this. I mean, Jesus, in his trial, insisted that the law of the land be followed. Paul called government officials in Philippi to follow the law, insisted that they do so. And when he saw himself being treated unjustly, he used a mechanism in, in Roman law to appeal to Caesar for justice. And so I think we'll, we can do that, and, and I think we probably will have to do that in the days ahead. But I think then, like Daniel, when we've exhausted every avenue that is allowed to us by the law, by our nation's constitution, then like him, we ultimately have to obey God rather than men, and we have to graciously accept whatever consequences that brings. And what about when there is failure, Tom? No doubt many of our listeners have already succumbed to some level of failure, and quite frankly, many throughout church history have denied the faith under duress, so they're not alone. In fact, history records a number of believers who compromise as a result of persecution during the Reformation. 
Some even recanted their faith in order to avoid being burned alive at the stake. So help us to understand in a practical way, how can a Christian recover from that dark place of compromise? We know that God will graciously forgive that sin, but how does a Christian who has failed deal with the guilt of of compromise? Well, you know, I don't think there's a better example of that in in Scripture or in all of church history than the Apostle Peter. I mean, what compromise could be greater than the one on the night of our Lord's betrayal and his own denial, uh, Peter's denial of Christ in that setting? And yet, you know, I'm encouraged by everything Jesus does in that whole scenario. And I think it, it encourages us if, if we find ourselves having compromised. You know, I, I love the fact that Christ said, Peter, even beforehand, he says, I've prayed for you so that your faith will not, be, will not fail. Um, and so I think we can take comfort even as we contemplate, you know, what will I do when that moment comes for me? The bottom line is our Lord will not allow the process of temptation, even our giving in to that temptation to destroy our faith. If we're in Christ, Christ himself is praying for us in the midst of that, that our faith will not be destroyed. And um, the Father always hears him. So there's, there's great encouragement there. I also think you look to after the fact, and you just see the, the, the Lord's restoration and forgiveness in that wonderful episode, you know, at the end of John's Gospel, where the Lord clearly forgives Peter, restores him, uh, challenges him about his love, and, and says, if you really love me, I want you to care for the, those I care for, my sheep. And, um, and then, of course, I, I think that ultimate restoration comes not only in, in that, that forgiveness and in the, the enjoyment of that forgiveness, but don't forget, 50 days later at Pentecost, um, he turned that restoration into, by God's grace and the work of the Spirit, into courage and resolve to obey and speak the truth, whatever the cost. I mean, you know, we read what happens at Pentecost, and we say, of course, but Peter didn't know that going in. He, he didn't know for sure what the outcome would be. The Lord hadn't promised um, exactly all that would transpire. He knew the Lord had said he'd live a long life and, and ultimately would be led in a path that he didn't want to go and, and ultimately crucified. But he had, by God's grace, the courage in that moment, 50 days after the denial, with a new resolve not to compromise. And I think that's the restoration. It's, it's resting in God, it's forgiveness, it's restoration, and then by God's grace, the next time that temptation to compromise comes, stepping up, and by, by God's grace, demonstrating courage to be true. And may the Lord make us faithful to that end. Tom, thank you for encouraging us today. The people of Countryside Bible are profoundly blessed to send under your leadership and teaching. Well, thank you. It's it's such a joy to uh, be with you, and and thank you for calling us all to the fact that the truth does remain. You know, whatever comes, whatever goes, whether it's in season or out of season, the truth remains, and we can build our lives on it. If you've been encouraged and strengthened by the ministry of David Parsons and Truth Remains, 
Please remember, we are 100% donor-supported. If you'd like to help this ministry continue and enable it to grow, let me encourage you to join the Truth Remains Fellowship by mailing a tax-deductible donation to Truth Remains at P.O. Box 33187, Granada Hills, California, 91394. You can also make your gift by calling toll-free at 1-888-36-TRUTH or donate online at truthremains.org. And now for David Parsons and the Truth Remains team, I'm your host, Jim Tuck, thanking you for your support and reminding you that men and philosophies come and go, but truth remains. <laughs>